Coming up, could Nets coach Steve Nash be on the hot seat as his team faces elimination tonight versus Boston? The whole NBA first round recap to date, Tigers' Miguel Cabrera reaches the 3,000-hit plateau, but it came with a delay. I'll explain why. A potential big injury in the NHL as we're a week away from the playoffs and another hockey legend passes away. The NFL schedule won't be released for a few weeks, but they already have Christmas Day on lockdown. Lots to get into, including my hero in Zero of the Week. It's all on deck, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? Is happening, my good people. Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, and excellent spirits. I do hope spring comes at some point, because here in the Northeast, it's been nothing but 50 and 60 degree days, although Saturday was warm, but geez. Can spring finally arrive so I could put away the jackets? I could have these short sleeve polo shirts on from here till, let's say, uh, early October? Can we get cracking on that, uh, Mother Nature? Let's go. Speaking of let's go. I have a great podcast in store, as I'm going to have a lot to say on various topics. So this final week of April brings us to the start of a new podcast. So if you like, love, or even crave sports, you've come to the right place to listen to it all, as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me since the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as last Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. I have quite a few things I want to touch on. Of course, all the sports, the playoffs, etc. With the NBA, I know that's been the hot topic here over the last few weeks. Rightfully so, because anytime you get a postseason in any sport, as we know, when we get to the football, every Monday it's going to be a recap of the wild card or the divisional round, or of course the championship of each AFC and NFC conference. If the hockey season, when that will begin next week, we'll touch on what's going to happen then. Same with the baseball. So when you're getting ready to... Start the journey to crown a champion. That's always going to be front and center. But there's a lot of other things I want to get to. Of course, with the NFL schedule, which won't be out for a few weeks. But I have a major problem with Christmas Day. And I'll touch on that later on. As well as what's happening in baseball. Yankees are finally playing better. But what happened there over the weekend was an absolute disgrace. Which is a layup. But I'm coming out in a fury 
firing from all different angles. So this one is going to be, I'm sure, a lot of laughs. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be, hmm, what is Jay Reels thinking? And this is what it's all about. This is why I love sports. This is why I love to discuss everything and anything. And this is why you're here. To not only be informed, but also entertained, because I just can't have this monotone voice or this one steady stream of, well, here we are today talking about, no, 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 no. There's going to be a lot of passion. There's going to be a lot of fire today. So, once again, you've been warned. And where I'm going to start is the NBA playoffs, but in particular, because they're right here in my backyard, and I get it that this could be easy pickings, and it's also a little dangerous because the series is not over, despite the Brooklyn Nets being in an 0-3 hole against the Boston Celtics. But with everything that's transpired, pretty much since the day Steve Nash walked into the building, and I'm not going to pick on him in particular, although there are a couple of things that I need to get out when it comes to the head coach. And I get that this may be a conversation for another day, and I get that this could also be, like I said, not only just dangerous, but premature to think that the series is over because as a sports fan and as a diehard Celtic fan, I know that this series is far from over. Granted that these games have been close. I understand game three, maybe not as much as it was in games one and two. And once again, I don't think the Nets are going to be swept. I don't think the Celtics are going to win tonight. They'll go back to Boston and who knows what's going to happen there. Maybe they'll win a game five. Maybe they'll come back to Brooklyn for a game six. But the reason why I want to target the Nets is because with everything that has transpired here over the last few years, and this is an organizational attack, because as I thought about this yesterday morning, especially after watching Game 3 there on Saturday night, and where Tatum went off for 39, and the defense, again, was just swarming Kevin Durant. Kyrie Irving couldn't hit a three-pointer to save his life as he completely missed on one shot. The rim barely hit the backboard. And when everything is starting to unravel for a Brooklyn Nets team that had championship robust pretty much since the day Kyrie and Katie walked in through the door, but even more so before the start of this year, knowing that you were going to have these guys as well as James Harden be part of this fabric. And then we find out pretty much from jump that Kyrie's not going to play in the home games. And then in the middle of the year that James Harden wanted out for all these different reasons, whether it was Kyrie not playing in the home games to where James Harden was out of shape, to him not signing up for this because he wanted to have all three guys in sync and it seemed like it was just the two guys. Then he expresses to the front office how he wants to be shipped to Philadelphia, but let's do it on the hush-hush because he doesn't want to face any public backlash. Then he gets traded and in comes Ben Simmons, which obviously I'll get to in a minute. But all of this, and now it leads up to this series, which I thought was going to be competitive and it has been to this point on top of that with any one of these three games especially game one it could have went either way and same for game two even though the Nets ran out of gas and was all about Goran Dragic and Bruce Brown KD wasn't in sync Kyrie was a shell of he once was in game one that he was in game two and then game three even went off a cliff so now it leads up to this to the point where you really have to think for the 300 net fans that are out there whether or not this experiment was worth it. Because when it's all said and done, whenever their season ends, whether it's tonight, whether it's at some point this week, or who knows, could it end in a NBA final with them raising a banner to the rafters? Well, of course not then, but you get my point. And now you have to really wonder where this organization is going to go because chances are they're not going to make it out of this round. We know that 
And I'm going to start from the top with the owner. He's a new owner, Joseph Sy, And he's a guy that has made his presence felt ever since Mikhail Prokhorov left the door. Him wanting to have this team where it was going to be championship ready. They foregone the future and everything that Kenny Atkinson, the former coach, and Sean Marks, the GM, everything that they built, having to dig themselves out. And the net fan, they get a test. Because when they look on the other sideline or across the bench and they see Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, those were the two major draft picks that they owned. That Billy King, the GM prior, who shipped them to the Celtics for an aging KG for Paul Pierce, Jason Terry, and how they're going to have to look at these guys for the next decade as they wreak havoc throughout the East as well as the Atlantic Division. And although that wasn't the owner's fault, the current owner that is, but he does have to look at his team knowing that in all likelihood they're not going to make it out of the first round. And is he going to have to think about whether or not he's going to have to blow up this team? Because first and foremost, Kyrie Irving is going to be a free agent as he has a player opt-out at the end of this playoff, whenever that may be. And when you think about this, do you re-sign him to a max contract considering everything that you've had to endure over the last three years with Kyrie? Now let's add another layer to that when it comes to the head coach. And it's not Steve Nash's fault. And he still has two years left on his deal. But you do have to wonder whether or not that this team, when you just look at this series from the jump, and we get it that the Celtics have not necessarily the better players, but when you look at all round and in the system that they're in under Ime Udoka, who, again, the Net fans going to have to look at for the, at least the next five years. Let's just throw at least half a decade. I won't go as far as 10 at the moment because we know these NBA head coaches, their shelf life seems to be anywhere between five to eight years. But knowing that Udoka, who was on that net staff last year, is now up in Beantown, and they may have to, meaning the hierarchy, Joe Sy and company, have to revamp their thinking to think we may need to bring in a better coach than a two-time MVP of the league when he played with Dallas and Phoenix. And now it's like, we got to start from the beginning again? One more time. Nash does have two more years left on his deal. So I don't know if Joseph Sy is going to be that type of owner to just cut bait. Here's your $17 million and on to the next coach. This is where we're going to see what's in the heart and in the mind of the owner. Is he going to be George Steinbrenner-like? Now, nobody's George Steinbrenner. Uh, let's just start there. But will he be the type of guy to say, this is embarrassing, I understand injuries and understand we made a big season trade in the middle of the year, but we should be better than this. And knowing that I want us to be better and he's not this type of owner who is going to look at winning is second to breathing. A la George did once upon a time. But you do have to wonder what is he thinking here as this season is starting to come down to its probably its last game this evening potentially. So, unfortunately, you got to start with the coach. Then even the GM, Sean Marks, with the disaster of the trade in the middle of the year, sending James Harden to Philly for Ben Simmons. And Simmons is a guy, as you all know, I am not a big fan of, more so because of his attitude, and we understand how talented he is, 
But at the same time, he just can't walk on a basketball court and think that he's going to do extraordinary things based on his defense, on his transition and open court play. Because as we all know, he can't hit a free throw to save his life and he can barely make a layup as we saw last year against Atlanta in that game seven. So here it is. They make this trade. All right. He needs to get acclimated. We're going to baby him a little bit. We're going to try to get him up to speed. And then all of a sudden he has his back injury. All right. And he has a back. Okay. And even in the beginning, check the receipts. I wasn't on his case to say, oh, here we go, Ben Simmons. I said, all right, you know what? It's been a while. He hasn't played at that time, nine and a half, ten months. Let's see where it goes. To the point where now he can't play because his back is just shot. And now it made you think, all right, well, this, what did this guy do for the whole offseason? Was he just sitting on a sofa? Was he really working out? What's going on here? And then we get the word middle of last week that he'll probably play as early as game four when they needed him at least a game three even if it was just for window dressing, just for defense. Okay, he's going to have to run up and down the floor, etc., but can we bring him back a game earlier? Now, with the season on the line and the Nets in an 0-3 hole, Ben Simmons comes into the training room or to the facility, and he says, my back is acting up again. I don't think I'm going to make it for game four, which now upsets the apple cart from the top all the way down to the teammates especially, And here's another guy that you're not going to be able to trust 100%. So guess what? If I'm Joseph Tsai, not only do I have to worry about the coach, but now I have to worry about this player moving forward that i got to pay $140-some-odd million. On top of that, there's no way I could trade this guy unless I'm going to get another headache or a bad contract back. And I guess it's best to pay a young guy in his 20s than having to re-up James Harden if he did have a major postseason where he's in his early to mid-30s and you're going to have to pay him in upwards of 50-some-odd million dollars a year. So maybe having Simmons is better than having Harden. But if you're a Net fan, do you really want to have Simmons suiting up on your team for the next three years? Not knowing, A, you could trust him, and B, is he going to be dependable in any way, shape, or form on this team? And I'm not even talking about him just performing or him just suiting up to be on the court, but actually to be on the court in a big spot and to come through in a clutch. I know it's almost impossible The only way you're probably going to get anything in return is if you bring a guy like Russell Westbrook back, and we know the Nets aren't going to do that. But this guy's going to be a headache. And it's bad enough you're probably not going to have Kyrie around unless you're going to pay him one year, and I know Stephen A. Smith brought this up weeks ago, and he's absolutely right. We know how otherworldly talented he is, but I'm only going to pay him one year at a time. I'm not giving him a three- or four-year deal. I'm not even going to give him one year and an opt-out. At this point, here's your one year. We're going to pay you... 45, 50 million, and that's it. And then with Simmons, I would ship him as far away possible because this guy, and I get it, he's talented. I'm not knocking what his abilities are. We know offensively he's limited. Let's call it as we see it. But this guy, uh uh-uh, I don't want him on the team. Trade him. And this is why this series, now if the Nets come back to a game seven and they lose, Who knows what's going to happen? Or even if they push it to a hard-fought sixth game and they lose, let's see. But if they go meekly into the night and get swept, there's going to have to be a house cleaning from top to bottom. Because this team, think about it, you're going to have two aging superstars, or at least one, with Kevin Durant because he got his long-term deal. But who knows with Kyrie? 
Simmons, he's a big giant question mark. He's going to be on this team though. I'd be shocked if he gets traded. And what's going to happen with the coach? Do they go in and try to dangle a carrot in front of, dare I say, a Greg Popovich type? To where Joseph Sy says, we'll give away whatever first round picks that we have left and bring you in for two or three years to where we could finally get that elusive championship, even going back to the Jason Kidd era. It's fascinating stuff. And on the flip side of that, it's that weird question. Do you pound on KD and Kyrie for not playing well, or do you praise the Boston Celtics for the defense and what they've been able to do here in these first three games? Of course, you could say the easy way out is a combination of both, but to me, I'm still in awe and in shock with how this team's performed. They're getting contributions everywhere. And when you have your two big guys and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown follow that up by Marcus Smart, him winning Defensive Player of the Year, first time a guard has won in 26 years to get that distinction. And when you have Grant Williams chipping in, when you have Peyton Pritchard, it's almost as if when you watch this team in the first half of the year, and I thought that they weren't even going to get out alive. I thought that they were going to be hovering anywhere between the bottom half of the Eastern Conference bracket, you know, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And now here they are to where they're one game away from sweeping the nets and a date most likely with the Milwaukee Bucks. And they're clicking on all cylinders. Defensively, they are frustrating the hell out of Kevin Durant as well as Kyrie Irving. Kevin Durant has played probably the worst basketball that we've ever seen during the stretch. And which goes back to even Steve Nash. One other thing with him. If you're a big-time coach, or maybe even just a really good coach, and I'm not trying to say that Steve Nash is a bad coach, but if you have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving on your team, you know you're going to do whatever it takes to expose whatever weaknesses that the Celtics may have. And granted, right now, you're not seeing any weaknesses with the Celtics, so I'm sure he's watching the game film and is saying to himself, I have no answers for this. But a good coach will find a way to get his star player or players to at least not only make that contribution offensively, but to get open looks, to get to the basket, to be able to confuse that Celtic defense in any way, shape, or form. Because what he's done to this point is absolutely zero. But I'll get off the nets right now because it's about the Celtics. If you're a Celtic fan, you have to be, it's almost as if you have to rub your eyes and saying, is this an illusion? Is this something that I can't even digest because we were so awful for the first half of the year, and I understand it's the postseason, it's a different year, and they've played well since the beginning of January, but can we really see this in the next round when they're trying to stop a freight train in Giannis Antetokounmpo? Or if they get past that, maybe even Joel Embiid? Or a Miami Heat team that is pretty much a mirror image of the Celtic team when it comes to defense and playing hard-nosed type basketball on that end? Now, that's for down the road. But besides loving what you see right now, you almost can't believe it. I mean, I've been shocked. I don't even know what else to say. And I'm not going to say I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm riding this wave. I'm not thinking sweep. Can they sweep them? Absolutely. 
I think it's one of those situations where if by any stretch the Nets are down double digits somewhere mid-third quarter, will they give up? I don't want to say that. But the body language, and I'm sure the desperation, they're going to press, and they're going to try to do too much, and therefore it's going to lead to turnovers, and you would think that the Celtics would capitalize. But it's fascinating on all levels how this game tonight, and maybe even game five, but if the Nets do go quietly into the night, and with everything that I mentioned in the past, what, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, all that has to be put in play here as to what direction this net team goes. And again, it starts at the very top. All right, let's get through the postseason here. We'll start in the east and work our way out west. The Raptors saved face as they were able to win a game four and they pushed this series to uh, game five tonight, I believe, in Philadelphia, which you think that the Sixers will prevail. Now you have to... Wonder what's going to happen with Embiid. He has this thumb injury, which I believe, from what I've heard, is similar to what Jalen Brown had last year. And if you remember, he opted to get the surgery. We knew that the Celtics weren't going to go anywhere. But he's going to get the surgery once the season ends. But you got to wonder, if he has a bad game or if it's a pivotal game five, a game six moving forward, and he shoots four for 18, is it something that he's going to blame? Is it something that everybody's going to point to to be, oh, this is why Embiid wasn't as dominant or the MVP caliber player that we saw during the regular season? All that remains to be seen, but right now the Sixers are in great shape. We know that the Raptors had not played well. I get it that they were able to at least show some respect, salvage the game here, and you would think they set themselves up for an execution uh, tonight there at the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia. As for Chicago-Milwaukee, I know if you're a Bull fan, you have to be sick to your stomach to know that in the two home games, you had a one Grayson Allen go in there to score 22 points in a Game 3 and then 29 points, both career highs. So not only did he have a playoff career high in Game 3, but he topped that in Game 4 yesterday to where the Bucs have a commanding 3-1 series lead. So Chris Middleton is out for, in all likelihood, the next series. And Grayson Allen steps in, and what does he do? He puts forth not one, but two great efforts on the road. You could understand if this was at home, because generally role players, when they have those type of offensive outbursts, it's usually in the confines of their home building, fans, environment, etc. But no, Allen put up back-to-back A-plus efforts to where the Bulls, and we know that they were dragging their asses to the finish line here, going back to the regular season. But even after that, Impressive Game 2 victory. They weren't able to capitalize to at least get one of these two games to make it a series. So the Bulls could say bye-bye to their season, and the Bucks will now start to, I'm not going to say look ahead, but they have a date, as I mentioned earlier, with the Celtics, as we may expect. So that series is pretty much in hand. And then the Hawks, on Friday, were able to bounce back, get themselves back in the series. I know the game was delayed at the start because of a suspicious package outside of the arena right across from CNN Center. So you had a little bit of a scare and a tenuous moment there prior to the start of that game. But when all was cleared and we look at what happened there in Game 3, Trey Young, who has had an awful series, I'll get to him in a minute, but he was able to put up that floater there toward the end of the game as the Hawks were able to get closer in the series, down 2-1, 
with a late 111-110 victory. And then yesterday, after the first quarter, the game was pretty much done, thanks to Jimmy Butler, 35 points. He had 16 in the second quarter. Trey Young, who had another nightmarish game, 9 points, 5 assists. I believe he had 5 turnovers as well. So the Hawks couldn't capitalize on what they did there in the playing tournament by getting into the postseason. And granted, they had a rough start where they had that 36-hour turnaround from the end of the game against Cleveland on Friday night to Game 1 at 1 o'clock on Sunday in Miami. And they were not able to get on track. Game 2 was pretty much a, not necessarily a carbon copy of Game 1, but did not play well. And then, even though they were able to squeak by there on Friday night, but there were no match yesterday, and the Heat are just one game away from advancing to the next round where they will likely play the Sixers that we talked about earlier. And out West, you actually have a little bit of intrigue there because unlike the East, where everything is pretty much 3-1, 3-1, 3-1, and 3-1, right down the board, at least out West, we have a scenario other than Denver and Golden State, who they showed face yesterday by pulling out a victory. And even though chances are they're probably going to lose a game five up in the Bay Area, but Jokic came out, had a great performance there yesterday, I believe 37 points, but it's still not going to be enough. They're not going to get back in the series. I'd be shocked if they bring it back to Denver for game six. But when we have Minnesota-Memphis, Utah-Dallas, and even New Orleans-Phoenix, and I'll get to that series, we don't know Devin Booker. Friday night was tooth and nail until Chris Paul took over with 19 points in the fourth quarter as the Suns were able to prevail there late. 114-111, I believe, is the final. And you thought right then and there, if the Pelicans were going to be able to seize this series, they needed to win that game Friday. You want to be up 2-1. You want to see where the medal is going to be tested as far as everything that the Suns have done up until that point. But because they weren't able to seal the deal, they had an opportunity to, I'm not going to say coast or take it easy in a game four, the Suns that is. But the Pelicans did come out fighting. They were able to prevail there last night, 118 to 103. I know that Monty Williams was upset with the difference of free throws attempted, 42 to 15. And you know by him getting that out to the media and pretty much into the ear of the officials, game five is going to be flip-flopped as far as who's going to get the whistle and who's not. Brandon Ingram had 30 points who had that great game two to get them back in the series. So he was able to get back to his game two form. Also add Jonas Valanciunas with 26. And the Pelicans, they may be a tough out here. Now, they're going to have to win in Phoenix game five if they're going to win the series. Because I do not think that they could go to Phoenix, come back to New Orleans, and win two games back-to-back in order for them to get to the next series. I would be shocked to see that. So if they're going to win this series, they're going to have to win game five for me. But then Chris Paul, it's weird with him because he had that Friday night performance to where he felt, all right, I got to pull my team out of the fire, as I like to say. And just as I mentioned earlier, not trying to say that they were coasting. I'm not trying to say that, oh, we could put our feet up. We at least, even if we lose this game, we'll go back home. The series will be even and it's a best of three. But for him to only score four points in the game last night, I'm sorry, you're Chris Paul. I get it, you're going to be 37 years old. I get it that you have a lot of miles on those legs. But for him to have a fourth quarter 
that makes him look ageless and then shows his age 48 hours later, it's almost as if, which Chris Paul are we going to see from night in, night out? And we saw that last year in the finals to where he was great in the two games at home to start off the series. And then in game four, where they needed him the most, he was nowhere to be found. And it's weird. I'm not here to knock Chris Paul. I just got to call it as I see it. And it's one of those things where if you're a Sun fan, you'd have to think, all right, it's first round. I get it's not deep into the playoffs. But this in and out, up and down, when it's crunch time, all right, he's going to be there. But then you look at yesterday and he was invisible. That has to put a little doubt in your head if you're a Suns fan, doesn't it? Minnesota and Memphis, that series is even at two. And all you got to do is look back at game three. Talk about a guy who's been in and out, up and down is Carl Anthony Towns. He only scored eight points in that game where they had a 26-point lead, two 20-point leads at one point, and they spit the bit. So when they look at this offseason, if they were to lose this series, they won't be able to sleep because of what happened in game three. And all that talk, if you saw the behind the scenes or being mic'd up, oh, we in Minnesota, we in Minnesota, and boy, did the Grizzlies show them. Now they bounce back nicely in a game four to even the series, and to me, same deal with New Orleans. If Minnesota's going to win this series, they're going to have to win game five. Could they win a game seven at Memphis? I get it. Memphis isn't as seasoned as Phoenix is, even without Devin Booker, but you have to look at it. If they're going to go into Memphis in a game seven, who are you going to choose? And granted, that's part of the whole home court deal, but Minnesota's just too erratic. And yes, they do have talent, but you can't trust Carl Anthony Towns in a big spot. Same for D'Angelo Russell. Anthony Edwards, I get he's a second-year player and he's going to play fearless, but a lot's got to be shown from their side than I could see for Memphis where they're a little bit more cohesive. They've pretty much done it all year where Minnesota has faded in and out at times. So to me, Minnesota's going to have to come out like gangbusters if they're going to try to steal the series against Memphis. And as far as Utah and Dallas, we have a Luka sighting as he poured in 30 points in game four, but it wasn't enough. You had the Rudy Gobert floater, alley-oop there before Spencer Dinwiddie tried to ice the game and put the Mavs in a 3-1 series, which would have been a surprise because they actually did win a game three without Luka. But it's evened up going back to Dallas for game five and... This is anybody's series. I could see this going seven. I picked Mavs in seven. I could see them winning a game five and then going back to Utah. The Jazz will win a game six and then we'll see the Mavs try to pull out and move on to the next series with a game seven victory. Having Luka back is enormous and pretty much just in time. I know that game came right down to the wire. So if you're a Mavs fan, you have to be a beat. I know you're hurt because you would have been able to take a commanding lead at that point. But knowing Luka, and hopefully that he doesn't tweak that calf again, but we look like that's going to go to the end, and we could possibly see that with the other two series in the West, whether it's Minnesota-Memphis, maybe even the Suns and Pelicans. So a little bit of intrigue there, but so far, when you have five of the eight series that three games to one, and we know that the NBA first round is never great. If you get one game seven, you jump for joy. 
Maybe we could squeeze out two, which would be good for the NBA. But to date, not a lot of intrigue. Yes, you've had some storylines, and yes, you've had some feistiness here with the players joined back and forth and a lot of intensity, whether it's in Denver, Golden State, or even early on with Atlanta and Miami and some of these other series where it's been a little bit feisty. Who knows, we may see a lot more of that as the series gets intense and deep into this first round. So overall, eh, not great. Yes, some intrigue, but we'll see what happens here over this next week as we get closer to the second round of the playoffs. And one other note, the Charlotte Hornets fired James Borrego, who was there for four years, and granted they made it into the playing tournament the last two years. I get that's a tough job. And maybe Michael Jordan shouldn't have pulled the trigger unless he has someone else up his sleeve that he's looking to bring in that can maybe make more of uh, an immediate impact. But Borrego out as Charlotte Hornet coach there. So we'll see what direction they go here in the offseason. And lastly, let me also throw this in the mix. Chet Holmgren, the Gonzaga big man, he's going to enter the draft. And the only reason why I bring him up we understand a seven-footer, he can run the floor, shoot threes, good defensively. But it would have served him well to stay in college for at least another year because did you see that performance against Arkansas in the tournament? He's a guy that's raw. He's a guy that needs to put some weight on his body. And more importantly, he needs another year under his belt because if he thinks he's going to go into the league and make an impact right away, I don't care for what organization, what team, etc., he is going to be that guy, is going to be a project, and I think was not the right move. I know I didn't say it at the time when they lost to Arkansas there, which would have been a great matchup between Duke and Gonzaga there for that regional final. But Holmgren, yes. Does he have ability? Absolutely. And the talent is there, but it is raw. And he has to be in the right spot in order for him to flourish and to be on a team that's going to utilize all of his talents. So we have to wait and see what fit is right for that organization, but if you think this guy's going to come in and be 22-11 and 11 in his rookie year moving forward, then you haven't watched the same guy I watched. So just keep an eye on that. Alright, I want to touch on the NHL here because we're into the final week of the season, actually really four days, and not much has really happened here when it comes to the playoffs, as far as the West goes. I'm not even going to get into the East I know Washington lost a game yesterday where they could have made ground on the Bruins. And who knows? It, this could actually be the story heading into the postseason. I'm going to start here. Alexander Ovechkin on a breakaway crashes to the boards where he had to leave the game with an upper body injury. As we all know, the NHL, they want to be secretive with these upper body, lower body. They don't want other players or other teams targeting whatever the area of the body that the player suffers this particular injury. And in this case, it could be a shoulder, it could be an arm, it could be the ribs, who knows when it comes to Ovechkin. But we all know the type of year he's had, 50 goals. We talked about it there on the Thursday podcast. But with them having the second wild card, and even though they finally got their Stanley Cup in 2018 after many, many, many sleepless off-seasons and not being able to capitalize on 3-1 series leads against 8th seeds or 3-2 series leads and just disappointment after disappointment before winning the Cup in 2018. And they've pretty much gone back to that since. Now, that's not to say that Washington doesn't have a run in them. I have to see it in order to believe it because the Capitals have not done well since they won the Cup and they're pretty much forgiven because they finally 
did get the brass ring, but if there's not going to be an Alexander Ovechkin siding for the Caps into the postseason, you can pretty much forget it. And that's not going out on a limb by any stretch. So we're going to have to monitor this injury and how this is going to play in to the postseason, especially in that first round, because if he's going to be in the lineup or compromised, not 100%, and we all know how big, strong, fast, and in great shape that he's in, but who knows how this is going to affect his play. We all know he's a big, giant bowling ball. We don't know how this is going to affect his shot. All these things. So this is something we're going to have to monitor as an NHL fan once they get into the playoffs and whether he's going to be in the starting lineup or it's going to have to take a game or two, who knows. So that is number one item when it comes to the NHL here in this final week. Number two, we talked about the West. It's still pretty much up in the air because Dallas lost a couple of games. Now, they did beat Seattle yesterday and the rest of their games are at home over the course of the week. But it seems like these teams don't want to win. I understand Nashville lost to Tampa there on Saturday. And Tampa just destroyed Florida yesterday. And remember, Florida had that long winning streak. And they have 120 points total. And they've just been flying. But Tampa shut that down to the point of they blew them out of the building. 8-4 to four there yesterday. And also, I mentioned that the Capitals had an opportunity to gain some ground on the Bruins. I had my wild card hat on. It was actually the Penguins because they're one point behind them in the standings to where they could get the three seed in the Metropolitan Division. So that's the team that they're actually looking to catch. Although they have an outside shot to get the one seed in the wild card, they're with the Bruins, but they are closer to the Penguins. But going back out west, with Dallas having the rest of their games at home and Nashville this week, as I take a peek at their schedule, Nashville has... Calgary at Colorado at Arizona. Now, Arizona's a dead team walking, so they should be able to win that game. But home to Calgary and also Colorado, not easy games there. Where Dallas, like I said, the rest of the game's at home. They do play Vegas, Arizona, and Anaheim. Teams that look like they're going to be on the outs, especially Vegas, because even though they are currently at 89 points and are still in the wildcard mix, but Robin Leonard is going to be sideline the rest of this regular season and pretty much if they do make it into the playoffs the postseason as he's getting surgery on a lower body injury who knows what that is I'm sure it's a leg or a knee so you're not going to see Leonard in net for at least the rest of the regular season who knows what that means for the playoffs if they do make it that far like I mentioned they currently are at 90 points I mentioned 89 they are three behind Dallas in the wild card hunt And also, as far as the Pacific, they are six points. You can forget about that in the Pacific behind the Kings. So they pretty much have the wild card of bust if you're Vegas. And then if you're Vancouver, who have now lost three in a row and are at 87 points with three games to play. And the final three games that Vancouver has left is Seattle, LA, and at Edmonton. So maybe they could get a win there against the Kraken, the Kings, and Edmonton are both going to be tricky games. So, it's pretty much looking as if the Stars are going to be in good shape. Will Nashville fall apart to the point that maybe the Golden Knights could overtake them for the second wild card spot? Vancouver, an outside shot as well? That's what we have here going into this final week, as well as maybe Washington getting into the third seed in the Metropolitan. That's all you got as far as drama here into this final 
few games of this NHL season to where the postseason will start, I believe, a week from today. So if I take a look at the NHL schedule, upcoming, we know that the season ends Friday, which is a weird way to end the season, but I guess because of the COVID year and with the Olympics and not knowing the regular season, which usually ends on a Sunday, now it's on a Friday. But the NHL postseason... Right now, it's showing no game schedule, but you figure if they're going to end on a Friday, you would think starting Monday, you're going to get your first slate of games, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. When we get to Thursday, we'll have a better understanding, and obviously next Monday, if that's when the postseason does begin, as expected, we'll preview that, go through all these series as we get you primed and ready for a Stanley Cup playoff run. And then one other thing, And I probably should have started off the NHL segment with this. But the league suffers another legendary passing. We had Mike Bossy the week before. And then Guy Lafleur, the longtime Canadian, did play in New York for the Rangers for a year, as well as the Quebec Nordiques, went back to his native province of Quebec. I'm sure to the chagrin of the Canadian fan. But Guy Lafleur dying at the age of 70. And here was a guy that if you watched hockey in that time, now remember, no helmets. And Guy was a little bit before my time because I started following hockey late 70s, 79, when the Islanders, right before they started their cup run. And again, I was only 10 years old. So Guy Lafleur, who was still playing in the league and was still a factor, but when we look at those cup teams from 76 to 79, where they won four straight, and he was a, not a big part, was an enormous part of that team, and not only that, but also the identity. The fast skater, the hair that was flowing as he skated like the wind. When you think of the Canadians at that time, and there were so many great players to go down the list, whether you're Larry Robinson, whether you're Bob Gainey, whether you're Yvonne Cornier, uh, I could go on forever with this Canadian team. Ken Dryden was your goalie. But Guy Lafleur was the style. He was the number 10 The guy that, when you thought about that team at that time, the first person that came to mind was Guy Lafleur. One of the great goal scorers that the league has seen. On one of the, arguably the greatest teams. Now, we know that the Canadians had that dynasty when they won five straight cups in the late 50s. But for a guy like Lafleur, who is pretty much a king in Quebec, I believe they're going to have a public funeral for him. I don't know if it's going to be at the arena. We all know that the Montreal Forum is no longer here. So now I believe it's what the Molson Center or the Bell Center, whatever it is. I'm sure they're going to have a ceremony in that building for him at some point. We know the Canadians pay tribute to him. I believe it was last night or sometime over the weekend. And understandably and rightfully so. A guy that personified Canadian hockey for that period mid to late 70s, even into the 80s, and one of the last true players. When you think about the way the game was back then, it was rough, it was rugged, it was intimidating, and the Canadians were the antithesis of that. To where they were finesse, again style, they were able to not just skate around you, but at times skate through you, and not be that team a la the Boston Bruins, the Philadelphia Flyers that would just want to maul you on every inch of ice. 
And for Guy Lafleur to pass, 70 years old. Death is unknown. You could probably hearken it back to a couple years ago where they diagnosed lung cancer in his right lung. And that unfortunately could have been the beginning of just a rough stretch for the guy they called the flower. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to not only the hockey family, obviously the family of Guy Lafleur, and what could you say, another icon in the sport lost here over the course of the past couple of weeks. And even going back, Emile the Cat Francis, the one-time Ranger executive there going way back. I understand he was 95 years old, but still Clark Gillies. You talked about Jean Potvin. I know I'm missing another player who had recently passed who was maybe not as legendary, but another big figure in the sport during his playing day. Forgive me, I can't seem to draw his name at the moment. But Guy Lafleur, again, passing at the age of 70 years old. All right, let's turn our attention to the diamond as baseball. Here we are about two and a half weeks into the season, and we already have our first milestone that was accomplished over the weekend where Miguel Cabrera is now the seventh player in Major League Baseball history with not only 3,000 hits, but 500 home runs. Congratulations to him. Stellar career. Came up with the Marlins, as we all know, 20-year-old. Hit a home run off Roger Clemens in Game 3 as the Marlins were victorious and winning the World Series that year. And then, after the 2006 season, he was traded to Detroit along with Dontrell Willis and that big trade where Cameron Mabin... I believe also Andrew Miller was part of that trade going from Detroit to Miami or to Florida as they were the Florida Marlins at the time. And we know the type of career that Miguel Cabrera has put up here, including a triple crown year in 2012, the first one since Carl Yastrzemski in 1967 that we've seen in a triple crown. I think I said triple double if I did, forgive me, but to have a triple crown winner, home runs, RBIs, batting average, and we saw that with Cabrera. One of the great right-handed hitters, dominant of all time. And even better, throughout part of the back end of the steroid era, when we look at guys like Manny Ramirez, Alex Rodriguez, right-handed hitters who had power and could hit for average, well, with Cabrera, for as much as we know, did it clean. And at 39 years of age, was able to accomplish that. We know he's going to be a lock, surefire, first ballot Hall of Famer, whether he had 3,000 hits or not. But we know the type of career he's had at the plate, more so there than in the field. He's pretty much relegated to a DH, probably could be a spot for his baseman at times, but it's all about what he's done throughout his career. So congratulations to Cabrera for achieving that milestone. And it's interesting because when we think back, he had an opportunity to get his 3,000 hit on Thursday afternoon against the Yankees to where he was 0 for 3, runner on second, eighth inning, and Aaron Boone in a one nothing game where they were trailing, decided to walk him intentionally. To the chagrin of the Tiger fan, and understandably, rightfully so, and at first you could think, all right, Boone, some strategy. He doesn't want to give up a hit here. He could probably lose the game. He Out of respect for Cabrera, but to the fan base. And luckily that the games over the weekend were at home to where Colorado came into town, and they had to wait another day because of a rain out there on Friday to where... I believe he got the hit in his first at-bat in the first game of the doubleheader against the Rockies. But for Aaron Boone to intentionally walk him there? Come on, Aaron. I mean, please. Seriously? 
as it was, it backfired to the point where they scored two runs in the bottom of the eighth. They ended up losing 3 nothing, and then he came home, and I'll get to the Yankees in a minute. But for Boone, come on. Have a clue. Have a sense. Let your pitcher try to get a big out there against the, an all-time great. Don't just walk him and, all right, strategy, I guess he had to manage there, but at least give your pitcher an opportunity to get an out there. It is Miguel Cabrera. But at least the Tiger fans weren't robbed of that moment, and maybe, who knows, in the back of Boone's mind, he probably went at some point in the game or maybe in the eighth inning knowing that Cabrera had a chance to come up and says, do the Tigers have a home schedule this weekend or are they going away and knowing that the game was at home or the series was at home he figured ah let's just walk him he'll probably get a hit over the weekend I don't want him to get a hit against us maybe that was the logic who knows but that's what we have there with uh, Miguel Cabrera now as far as the Yankees go so they lose that game shut out for the third time in their first what is it 13 games not a good look for their offense but then they awoken this weekend more so yesterday they scored 10 runs but it's all about what happened there on Saturday when we think about it and good for the Yankees, they sweep the Guardians, big whoop. But what we saw there Saturday afternoon, and this is another layup, and this is where I'm going to come out, shots firing. What in the hell are the Yankee fans doing? And Miles Straw does get some blame here, because for him to scale the wall to get to the face of a Yankee fan, come on, my guy, you should know better than that. Now, who knows what they were saying? We know the Yankee fan, especially out in that bleacher section, has been notorious for just awful behavior, Whether it's throwing whiskey bottles, look it up. Whether it's throwing batteries. Whether it's throwing a blow-up doll at Jose Canseco. Back in 1991, I believe it was, when he was dating Madonna. Look that up. So the Yankee fan and their behavior has been absolutely deplorable. And for what happened there on Saturday, late in the game, I might add, to where, all right, Miles Straw, he didn't, let it go one ear out the other. Terrible job on his part. But for the fans, and they could say all they want. That's within reason. You don't want to get too personal, obviously get worse than that. But for them to throw garbage and debris all over the field, for Giancarlo Stanton and for Aaron Judge to have to run out to the outfield to calm these guys down. I mean, please, what the hell's going on here? Don't they know any better? And don't say, oh, Jay Reels, that's just him getting on the Yankee fan. He's a Met fan. And he will destroy the Yankees any chance he gets. If they were Met fans, I'd kill them the same way. And for the Yankee fan to do that, to delay the game, and it was tied 4-4 at the time, and straw, again, it should have been one ear out the other. And I know security was boosted up there yesterday, and they were still getting at Miles Straw, chanting all types of names and whatever it was, crybaby, etc., Well, Straw got what he was looking for yesterday afternoon, but what happened there with the fans throwing stuff on the field? Absolutely disgraceful. I mean, those fans, I get it. They're liquored up, and who knows how many beers in that they were at that time. But, ah, not only just hate to see it, whether it was any ballpark, but if it's the Yankees, oh, geez, I could get on my soapbox for an hour and talk about it. But I just had to throw that out there. But again, I'm not the only one that's killing them there. I'm sure everybody else, whether here locally, talk radio, another podcast, they would say the same thing. You cannot, by any means, not condone that type of behavior in a ballpark if you're the home fans. Disgusting. And then if you're the White Sox, I know they had a 
Big injury there over the weekend with Eloy Jimenez, who came crashing down onto the turf there against the Twins to where it looked like it was season-ending, where he pulled his hamstring. He's going to be out six to eight weeks. And with Jimenez, we saw him last year try to scale the wall in an exhibition game to where he was out. Supposedly, he was supposed to be five, six months, but he was able to come back in the middle of the summer. But you have to wonder with his health here because he's a guy that's big and strong, but maybe too many weights, not enough stretching, not enough flexibility. I don't know, but he's a key bat and a big part of that lineup for the White Sox. So to be out for probably two months and hammies, as we all know, super tricky. So that's one we're going to have to keep an eye on if you're a White Sox fan and in a division where you would think the White Sox will go away as a runaway division winner. But with Jimenez out, we'll see what that effect will be on a White Sox team that is looking to do big things this year. Other than that, baseball pretty much the same. I know the Reds finally got a victory there. They lost 11 in a row. They were 2-13 and going into their game yesterday so they could at least breathe a little sigh of relief as the Reds were able to salvage that game against the St. Louis Cardinals where the Mets will now go to St. Louis and Max Scherzer will start tonight. As they continue to win series, they have not lost a series yet. In danger of doing so yesterday, but they were able to pull away late in Arizona to the tune of a 12-5 record. Four games, really three in a loss ahead of the Marlins of all teams as they won two out of three in Atlanta over the weekend. And Atlanta, they're playing possum like they did in 2021. Remember, they got off to that terrible start two-thirds of the year. They were just underachieving, and then they took off after all the trades post trade deadline, and we all know what happened there at the end of the year with them being the last team standing and winning a world's title. So hopefully that's not going to be a repeat performance, but so far so good for the Mets. As we look around, the NL West is looking very competitive. Even give it up for Colorado as they're 10-5, and just a game behind the Dodgers in first place. Will that last? Probably not. But the Giants, 11-5, and as they were able to sweep in Washington over the weekend, Padres, 10-7, and and just bouncing around here, Seattle, off to a good start themselves, same for the Angels as they played well, the Astros have not played well, but again, they got off to a slow start last year, and we saw how far they ended up, and the AL East looking competitive, although the Red Sox were not playing too well to start off the year, losing two out of three to Tampa over the weekend, and baseball... Let's just hope it's competitive as we see a natural balance to start even the Pirates of 500. But again, we know that once we get into May and certainly by Memorial Day when we get a real good feel and idea of how these teams are going to perform, we can really take a look from maybe not 30,000 feet because once we get to July 4th, we're pretty much going to know who the contenders are from the pretenders. But at least for right now, two and a half weeks in, other than maybe Cincinnati, the Texas Rangers, the Arizona Diamondbacks. Baseball is off to a very good, if not decent, start when it comes to the entire landscape. And then let me wrap it up here with the NFL. And the one thing in particular I want to talk about the schedule, it's not going to be released until May 12th, but word came down that on Christmas Day, For the first time in league history, and Christmas Day, I believe, falls on a Sunday this year, you're going to have not one, not two, but three NFL games. 
Now, last year, if you remember, on that Saturday night, you had the two games, what was it, Cleveland and Green Bay, and the nightcap, I believe, was Indianapolis at Arizona. So you had the two Christmas night games, followed by the slate there on Sunday. Well, now you're going to have pretty much your slate Christmas Eve, and they normally don't play Christmas unless you do have a Christmas night game, and they have done that in the past. But now you're going to have wall-to-wall football from 1 p.m. till about midnight. Which shows that the NFL, as I like to say, the Shield, reigns supreme because they look at that day as, let's capitalize on putting some games, and you know Green Bay is going to be one of those games. If not the 430 game, they are going to be the 820 game that night. You could bank on it. But what that also does, and I have to be frank here, shots fired again, the Shield shits on the NBA because we all know the NBA, that's pretty much their... Grand opening. Now, we understand that the NBA season starts in the middle of October. But when we get a feel for the NBA two months in, it's Christmas Day because we zero in on that time to look at the five Christmas games starting from noon up to about 1 in the morning. And obviously that window from 2.30 to 5, 5.30 to 8, and then prime time. But generally that 2.30 to 8 p.m. slot to where you have your marquee games. And usually that 5.30 to 8 is either a rematch of an NBA final teams from the year before or a highlight game as we saw this year between Brooklyn and the Lakers. We all know that as the season went on, those teams were not anywhere close to what they should have been, but you get the point. So what is the NFL going to do this year? All right, so instead of doing another 4.30 and 8.20 game, no, let's just... Wipe the whole slate clean, start from 1 o'clock, who cares what the NBA has, and let's just plow on through our schedule as being the best sport on the planet, as being the high and mighty NFL, and I get it, people are going to say Jay Reels pipe down, who cares, nobody talks about the NBA on that day, nobody cares about the NBA two months in, etc., but at least it's their day, at least they can look at it and say, all right, here are our five games, You pretty much have it from the time you open your presents until you finish your last sip of eggnog. And the NBA is pretty much what's going to be talked about in the sports world for that day. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. Not this time around. You're going to have three games to talk about. And you know they're going to be all hotly anticipated. Or at least, in my opinion, games that are going to matter. They are not putting Houston at Jacksonville at 1 o'clock there on Christmas Day. You could bet your life on it. And like I said, either the 4.30 or the 8.20 game is somebody at Green Bay. Rams at Green Bay. It's not going to be Detroit at Green Bay, I can tell you that. So just keep that in mind as we look forward to the schedule. And an NFL draft, that is, I don't know if it's me or I'm not paying attention, but there's been no buzz about this draft. Now, come Thursday, I'll get into it a little bit. But again, this is one draft that seems to be somewhere in the clouds because there's been little to no buzz about what's going to take place here this coming Thursday as round one of the draft comes at you Thursday night. All right, let me get to it, people. My hero and zero of the week to close us out. My hero of the week goes to Jake Arrieta, the longtime pitcher, most notably for the Chicago Cubs as he had that dominant 2015 season that led to a Cy Young, two no-hitters in that year, I might add as well as a World Series victory the year after in 2016. 
12 years in the majors, started off with the, I believe the Baltimore Orioles, I should double check that, but was an Oriole, then went to the Cubs, we all know he ended up Philly, San Diego, until he said, "Uh uh-uh, my time has come, it's time for me to hang it up, so Jake Arrieta, kudos to you my guy, you're my hero of the week, and my zero of the week, I don't know if you saw the highlight, but the junior college baseball game with the Texas League, I don't know what it was, but where that pitcher was suspended for four games after he tackled that opposing batter after a home run. It was the North Texas Junior College Athletic Conference to where pitcher Owen Woodward charged the mound as the player who hit the home run, who I believe was Josh Phillips, was rounding third, and he had a full-on tackle that an NFL player would have salivated and just cheered over to the point where he got suspended four games, Owen Woodward, and just an out-and-out disgrace. I don't know if there was any animosity leading up to that at-bat. It looked like Josh Phillips, who was running the bases, all right, a little bit slow. But it seemed like words weren't exchanged or glances or anything like that based on the video that I saw. But for Woodward to just full-out blitz him and declete him off of the turf, inexplicable, just uncalled for. And we all saw the highlight. If you haven't seen it, just YouTube it. But just an outrageous display of what the hell did I just watch? So Owen Woodward, you are my zero of the week. That'll do it. Another episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed that. And as always, people, I appreciate you sticking with me. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say. I hope you were entertained. I hope you were informed. And I hope you keep coming back. And also, if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Throw me a few stars. Write a review. Because not only do I hope you keep coming back, but the few choice words and the high rating that you put out will may bring the new listener not only to this podcast, but they may even come back to listen to more of what it is that I have to say about what happens in the world of sports. So please do so. I would sincerely appreciate it. Also, if you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, you could do so at the following on TikTok. The J Reels Podcast on Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast on Twitter, J Reels One, just a number on Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, or the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please hit me up. I'll be more than happy, ready, willing, and able to follow up with you ASAP. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this podcast, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy.com. Whatever you want to put forth, whatever you want to contribute is going to go 100% to this endeavor, to the production of this podcast, to the upkeep of the website, the equipment, anything and everything that entails this project. And it's not really a project because I've been doing this now for over 250 episodes for four plus years because this is what I love to do, people. If you couldn't tell based on this podcast, then I don't know, maybe I need to kick it up a couple notches or maybe, who knows, maybe you just have to keep coming back to be sure that anything and everything Thoughts, opinions, analysis, critiques, praise, all of it when it comes to what happens on the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. And I know Tyson Fury won his fight there the other day on Saturday. Was that big news? I don't know, but there's your little boxing segment. I guess I'll get into that a little bit deeper sometime in the near future. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.